Right, again, good morning. If you, if you have a Bible nearby, brought one with you or not, if you would, open it up to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. You know, Dave talked about being a little anxious about tennis practice and what the weather would do. And I know as one of our shepherds, he was also a little anxious about what kind of... You know, originally I thought it was going to have to be his call whether we had church this morning. I think he rejoiced when the calendar flipped to March and it became Ken Keen's call and the way the elders uh, kind of rotate those responsibilities. Uh, but I was thinking late in the week, uh, kind of like I put on the front of the bulletin cover, which honestly I assume no one would ever read. I didn't think we'd be here with the forecast. And I thought, it seems like every time it snows the last two years, it's on a what? A Saturday or a Sunday morning. And uh, so when it was coming in, I thought, well, man, we're going to miss another Sunday. And Emily and I, Emily, the office secretary, and I joked toward the end of the week that you know, we're doing all this work to get all these things ready, and you know, probably we won't even be here Sunday. But here we are, and here you are. If you're visiting, it's, it's great to have you, and uh, all of you, it's great to have you. I know that's a commitment you make, all of us do, every week when we get up and come to worship and encourage each other. And some weeks it's a little easier than others. So on a week when it's cold and wet and snowy and you're a little bit concerned about travel, when you make that kind of that extra push to get out the door and to be here, that's good. That, as Scott said this morning when he, when he began our time together, uh, that's an encouragement not just to Scott but surely to me and I would imagine to you as well. But <clears throat> I thought I'd do something a little bit different today because there are those times when when we are snowed out or when things happen or when you're sick or when, when life gets messy and you're not able to be here and we're not able to be here together and to study. And one of the things that I, in some ways I think we're starting to, to maybe lose just as a, a people in the world in our technological age, you would think with all the technology and all the aids that we have at our disposable, at our disposable, at our disposal, that we would be even better students of the Word of God. I saw a video, I think uh, maybe it was on David Wasserstrom's link, from a, actually a video from a couple years ago, of a group of, <clears throat> I don't know how to describe them exactly, if they were believers yet or they were just seekers looking for God, but it was a group of, of young adults in China who received for the first time in their lives a package of Bibles. And it showed them as uh, maybe a couple dozen of them even as, as this big box was being opened and these plastic wrapped paperback Bibles were brought out and just feverishly being handed out to the people in this crowd. And it showed them grasping the Bible and crying and kissing it, just kissing it. And it, at first you think, well, how strange, which is sad, isn't it? Because you realize what they're doing. I mean, this is, someone has been there and someone has told them about God and someone has told them about Jesus and now for the first time in their life, they can have it. They have their own copy that they can open up and read and learn about God. And what an exciting thing that was for them and hopefully what an exciting thing that still is for us. To have the ability to, we all have it. We all have maybe a few copies of the Bible, and then we have it electronically on your, on your phone, or on your iPad, on your tablet, or whatever. It's all around us. It's easy to access. But I don't know that we do a really good job of interacting with it. I just don't know. And so what I thought I would, I would like to do this morning <clears throat> is show you 
or kind of walk us through uh, one way that I like to work through the Gospels. Um, and right now, of course, in this, this short series, these couple of months, we're working through the Gospel of Luke, kind of hit and miss different passages in Luke. And so I wanted us to look at Luke chapter 9 today. And so I'm not going to preach at you so much, uh, rather than just, again, kind of try to take us through parts of this chapter and maybe give you some, some ideas to latch on to, maybe that you can use at least on those days when you can't be here. When you're, when you're on your own, or just you, or just you and your family, and, uh, and you decide to, to get the Bible out, and read, and study, and see what you can learn. There are a variety of techniques for Bible study, and ways that you can go about it. One of the things, though, that I like to consider whenever I'm in a gospel, like Luke chapter 9, of course, is one of the four gospels, is, in, a, in this particular case, I like to ask a couple of key questions. One thing, I, when I, any kind of Bible study I'm doing, any passage in the Bible I'm reading, I like to ask myself, first off, what is God doing? And you don't have to necessarily ask in these orders, but what is God doing? What does this text tell me about God? Sometimes the text will tell you about His nature, about what He's like, the things He loves, the things He hates. Other times the text is going to kind of draw you a map or paint you a picture of the kinds of activities God has been or is still involved in in this world. So who is God? What is God doing? That, that's kind of critical, maybe at the core of our study. And then we begin to ask ourselves questions that branch out from that. If, if that's at the core, then those things that radiate out from it are, well, what does God want me to do? Who am I? How do I relate to this God? And so those are kind of big, basic questions that if we begin there, it's helpful and wise and as we read into different parts of the Bible, different kinds of Scripture do different things. Not all Scripture is the same. There's poetry, there's history, there's wisdom, there's prophecy, there's apocalyptic, these strange visions of the future. The Gospels are strange in and of themselves because they're sort of historical, but they're not written strictly like a history book or a newspaper account. Because these are theological histories, they're not intended just to, to give a biographical account of the life of Jesus. They're intended to help people understand who God is and what He's doing through the Son, through this Messiah, this Christ. And so whenever Luke writes his history of sorts, his gospel account, and tells us about Jesus, I, I hope if you're reading along through Luke in these couple of months, I hope you're doing that, then I hope one of the things that you're seeing is that Luke goes to great lengths, chapter by chapter, to help us see who Jesus is. And it's easy for those of us who have read the Gospels before, who know the broad swath of the Gospel story, it's easy for us to sometimes to skip over those things or almost dismiss them because it's like we already know all that. But what I encourage you to do whenever you're reading through the Bible on your own, either big chunks or small ones, is at times when you read to forget you know anything. And just allow yourself to hear it fresh, like it's the first time. And see what it is that these gospel writers in this case are telling us. In Luke chapter 9, Luke is going through periods where he's going to tell a story and he's going to give some information. And he's going to tell a story and he's going to give some information. And in the midst of these stories and this information about Jesus, there are some really key questions. Whenever I read Luke chapter 9, the biggest question that comes out to me 
that I think Luke is trying to help us identify and then answer with these stories and illustrations. The question is, who exactly is this Jesus? Second thing Luke is working on as we read through this story is he realizes that Luke himself, as he writes these things down, is writing it for the church and he's writing it for those like us who believe. So he knows as we read his account that we're going to read things that we're already aware of. We've read the story. We've read Matthew, Mark, and John. We're aware of some of these things. And so not only does he want us to identify who is this Jesus, not only is he trying to reaffirm those things, but in places like in Luke chapter 9, he's also then saying to us, what does that mean then for me? Who am I in relation to this Jesus? So two key questions I want you to be thinking about and asking yourself as we work through a couple of these passages. We're not going to go through the whole chapter. It's long. But as we work through a couple of these, cha- uh, these passages in Luke chapter 9, I think that will help uh, demonstrate kind of what I'm talking about. And then I will, I will leave you with the text. I'm not going to preach at you a whole lot today. Luke chapter 9. Verse 1, let's read some. And Jesus called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. I do want to point that out to you because that's not the last time you're going to read that in this chapter. To proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And if you've been here in previous weeks or, or have read deeply in the first eight chapters, so to speak, of Luke, you'll notice that when Jesus goes about from place to place, what is he constantly doing? What are the two things that define his, his active ministry? He's proclaiming the kingdom of God and he's healing. Everywhere he goes, those are the two things that go hand in hand every time. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money. Do not even have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So I come to the end of a passage like this and I ask myself, okay, so who is Jesus? What what does this text tell me about God? Or in this case, about the Christ. Verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead and by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. And Herod said, Well, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. What Luke has begun to do so far in this chapter is to tell us that this Jesus, this one who in the first eight chapters we we hear his lineage, we hear of his baptism, of his temptation, of his beginning his public ministry in the synagogue, how he proclaimed that this was the year Lord's favor, that the kingdom of God had come. And then we see what that looks like in practice as he goes from place to place, healing people, curing diseases, casting out demons, stilling storms, doing all kinds of miracles. And so Herod, like everyone else, hears about this and he asks himself the question that the great power and and miraculous ability of Jesus is intended to provoke. 
See, when we see God doing great and amazing... I said I wasn't going to preach. I repent now for lying. But uh, whenever we see God doing these incredible and amazing things in our lives, the purpose of those things is so that we will ask questions like this one. Who is this Jesus? It's going to be a predominant question for this whole chapter. Luke responds with a story. On the return, the apostles told him all that they had done, told Jesus. And Jesus took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. And when the crowds learned of it, they followed him, and he welcomed them, and he spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured all those who had need of healing. And when the day began to wear away, the twelve came up to him, and they said, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and to get provisions, for here we are in this desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, well, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. And there were already about 5,000 men. And so he said to his disciples, well, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so, and they had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. Herod says, Who is this Jesus? And Luke tells us a story. A story not unlike some we've already heard about His great power, of His miraculous, and not just about His power, but you understand, and Mark tells it in a longer version, the same story. In fact, this is the... Uh, I think it's the only miracle account of this kind that's in all four Gospels. But of the great love for Jesus, that after all He's done, after all the, the pain and emotional money that's been spent, that after a very long day of teaching, instead of just sending the people away empty, He feeds them Himself. Who is this Jesus? Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. Now that, that sounds strange, but it meant as he had been praying alone, the disciples showed up. And he asked them, well, who do the crowds say that I am? See, now Luke's getting to it. And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? This really becomes a climactic moment in the Gospel of Luke. Because like a good orator, Luke has been building his case for this, great, for this lover of God, for Theophilus, who he writes this Gospel to. Talking about Jesus, telling about his background, giving us ideas or uh, stories and illustrations of the things he could do and the things that he did, what his life was like. And it's all building to this, who is this Jesus? And Peter answered, You are the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. If verse 20, Who is this Jesus, serves as a climax, then verses 21 and 22 may serve as the reason 
most of the world won't believe. And the reason why too many Christians will not follow. Can you imagine being a disciple, seeing all that he had done? You've already left a lot to follow Jesus. These fishermen left their nets. Others left jobs. Some left families. They follow the man. They see what he's doing. They're hopeful. They're anxious. They're, they're amazed. And when he finally has this, this grand climactic moment, who do you say that I am? He's called himself the Son of Man. If you don't understand that, read Daniel 7. He is the one that the Almighty sent to have an everlasting kingdom that would not go away. He said, but who do you think I am? And they understand, you're, you're not just John the Baptist come back. You're not just Elijah having been sent back by God, but you are, you are the anointed, the Messiah, the Christ of God. Wow. If that's true... And you're among his inner circle. That means good things, doesn't it? I mean, if this is the king whose kingdom will have no end, and you are his closest confidants, you are the ones who he's been mentoring and training and preparing, empowering. Didn't we see that in the first story in chapter 9? Empowering for ministry. And he's about to rise to the top and have it all and lay claim to the world. Then what does this mean for you? This got to mean good things. And just as those ideas are building up and welling up in the, in the minds and hearts of the apostles, I assure, I'm assured that Jesus knew that. Then what does he say? He says, but don't tell anybody this. But be aware that I, the Son of Man, whose kingdom has no end, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to be murdered. And then on the third day I'll be raised. Who is this Jesus? How do I fit in? And he said to them, If if any of you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You know, that would be a strange thing to say. We, We hear that. We who exist after the crucifixion and the resurrection. But to have been there that day, for Jesus to not have yet been crucified and to hear Him, the Son of Man, whose kingdom has no end, to hear Him say to His closest friends, if you want to you follow Me, if you want to be My disciple, then deny yourself. It means give up control over yourself. No longer put yourself first. No longer be satisfied to have your own needs met. But take up a cross, your cross, and follow me. If I was there, I don't think I would have understood a bit about what that meant. We learned later in this chapter that neither did they. Because the image wouldn't make any sense. We wouldn't have anything to compare that against. Because the only people who, who took up crosses were those who deserved it. They were the criminals. They were the absolute worst criminals. They were the ones that the Romans wanted to make a spectacle of, Literally. None of this makes sense to them. Sometimes we act like it makes no sense to us. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits? Some older translations say his soul. 
My ESV says himself, which is what, what that means. What does it profit you if you gain everything and lose all that you are? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Okay, now those are impressive words. But if you're following a man who does great things, who then says to you, by the way, you expect me to be a king, but I'm going to be rejected. And you expected me to overcome, but I'm going to be killed. And yes, I will be raised, but you, by the way, you expect to be glorified and live this glorious life. Well, really what you have to do is deny yourself. And you have to live a life as if a cross is strapped on your back for my sake. Might you have second thoughts? Maybe hauling in fish at four in the morning doesn't sound so bad now. Maybe you could handle the calluses. Maybe life as a tax collector wasn't so bad. I mean, wasn't exactly a luxurious life, but it wasn't too bad. Who is this Jesus? What exactly does he want from me? It's at that point when we've been built up only to be in some ways let down that Luke tells us this transformative story. He says about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him They were Moses and Elijah. They had appeared in glory and they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You see how now he reframes this? Did you see that? And now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, that's the word for Lord, It's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Not knowing what he was saying. But as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered into the cloud. If you remember your Old Testament stories, when God drew near, in what way did He come near to His people? To the tabernacle. In a a cloud. I think as Peter and John and James are there on that mountain witnessing this thing and they are enveloped by this cloud, uh, any good Jew would know what was happening, that they were coming into the, the very presence of God. And as he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid, as they ought to have been, as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my Son. My chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Don't you love what Luke does? How he understands the big questions that we have in our hearts and in our minds about God and about his Savior. 
and how Luke, as a master storyteller here, if we're willing to read the Bible broadly, if we're willing to do more than, than spend a moment or two in Scripture reading it today, if we will, we will sit down and take the time, as we've already been encouraged to do today, and read and follow and, and see what He's doing as He answers these big questions. Who is God in this chapter? Who is Jesus? And who are we? How do we connect? How do we follow? What does that mean? And He takes us from evidence now to the big answer. And then to doubt, and then once again to the big answer. From the best evidence that anyone could possibly have from the mouth of God Himself. My Son, my Chosen One. God said, listen to Him. Whenever we think about who Jesus is and what our discipleship is supposed to look like, those are still the kinds of questions we have to ask each, each other and ourselves daily. Who is God? Who am I? What does He want from me? If we only get stuck on what does He have for me, what will He give to me, what do I get from this, then our faith is anemic. But when we begin to ask, what does God want from me? What can I offer to Him? Then, then we, have, we have reached that point in our life and in our faith when we're doing the very thing Jesus said, when we're learning what it is to take up our cross and to follow Him, when we're learning how to be sacrificial, like Jesus, who stayed out all day teaching and feeding and then half the night praying. We begin to be unselfish. We begin to be people whose eyes are open so that we see those in pain, that we see the wounded, that we take notice and then take time to address those things that are right around us, on our own doorstep, in our own neighborhoods, in our own schools, in our own places of work, so that we show people that we care, that we love them, because God cares, because God loves them, because we're disciples. It means we're followers. It means we're students. And Christ, on behalf of God, is our teacher. If we were to continue reading in John, in Luke chapter 9, we would, we would see sort of the similar kind of pattern that we've already seen. Miracle stories, proclamations about His death, questions amongst the disciples, how does this fit into my life? What does this mean to me? And Jesus once again telling them at the end of the chapter what I want us to conclude with today. Verse 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And to another he said, Follow me. But that one said, Well, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, well, I will follow you, Lord, but, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And this isn't the last time in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is going to speak of following and fitness. It's not the last time He's going to tell us that to follow Him means that we're willing to 
prioritize life in a way that puts him first and everything else second. As you read your gospel, look for those, those clues. And I don't mean clues as if they're hidden and overly mysterious. But look for those pieces of evidence. Look for those teachings and those illustrations that help you answer for yourself, who is this Jesus? And then that help you define for yourself who you are and how you fit into the ministry of God. Because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He is the prophesied Son of Man whose kingdom will have no end. So the day will come when the trumpet of God will sound and Scripture tells us that Christ will return, that the dead will all be raised and Christ will reign over everything, even over sin, even over death. And then we will be forever with the Lord. If, if we've been faithful. So, I pray that as you, as you study and as you, you teach yourself and you teach your family and you teach your, your kids and your grandkids, that you'll keep some of those things in mind. Don't ever think that, that Scripture is unapproachable. Don't ever think that, that you can't learn on your own. That's something that a few hundred years ago people were dying for the privilege of printing this thing we call the Bible so that we could have our own copy, so that we could read it from ourselves, so that you wouldn't have to rely on a priest or a preacher, someone like me, to tell you what it says. But so that you could, you could fall in love with God through His Word again and again and again. If we as a church family can be of any aid or assistance to you today, anything whatsoever, whether that's your desire to, to repent or to confess or to, to be baptized into Christ, or whether it's a desire for prayers or for comfort or for encouragement, anything at all, you're welcome to let us know now or you can let, you can let our shepherds know uh, at the conclusion of the service and, and they will no doubt be happy to serve you. But if you'd like to make that known publicly now, won't you come as we stand and sing?